All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I have a very special guest on the show with me today. We have Dr. Matt Smear. Dr. Smear studies the neural mechanisms of olfactory function in mice. Mice have an excellent sense of smell. Much of their genome encodes odorant receptors, over a thousand genes, and a large portion of their brain processes olfactory information. These neural features support a rich repertoire of olfactory behaviors. Dr. Smear's lab integrates olfactory function with a battery of psychophysical uh, tests while manipulating and recording neuronal activity with genetics, electrophysiology, and imaging. From these studies, his lab will pursue general principles of how neural circuits generate behavior. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Absolutely. So uh, tell me a little about kind of the, the current projects, what, what uh, sort of stuff your lab is working on. So um, the, the aspect of olfactory function in which we're most interested is olfactory spatial function or, or the ability to find the source of an odor uh, in space. Um, and so uh, most of our effort is, is around that and particularly around how the animal samples its environment while it's trying to solve this problem of following its nose, essentially. Um, and so um, we look very closely at the animal's breathing behavior and how that breathing is coordinated with their movements. Um, we have a, a recent study that we posted to BioArchive, the preprint server, and is now um, in revision uh, at a journal um, where we show that um, in a, a behavioral task we've designed, mice can uh, show this really precise synchrony of their movement with their breathing um, on the order of tens of milliseconds. So um, the relationship of their movement to breathing is, is tantamount to you trying to dance to an irregular 600 BPM rhythm. So they have this really precise motor coordination that operates in service of sensory acquisition. And now our, our lab is, um, so we've done, our, our lab is, is striving to combine this with uh, recordings in the brain as animals do uh, try to solve this problem and perform these sampling behaviors. Um, and so we've developed tools for, for um, capturing, tracking, and characterizing mouse behavior at, at very uh, high resolution. Um, and so we're eager to look at the relationship of movement to neural activity, even in olfactory processing areas. Interesting. And, and how much of this, uh, and, and this is probably way too early to even be able to answer this question, but, but uh, are, are some of these findings that are coming out with mice, do you, do you anticipate uh, or do you envision them kind of carrying over um, some uh, carry over to human studies or, or like what you're talking about um, where mice have the, the specific, um, where their movement is coordinated specifically to their breathing. Is that, is that specific, is that unique to mice or is that something that we might eventually find in humans to some degree too? So um, 
I think the the general coordination of breathing with movement is universal to some extent among terrestrial vertebrates. Um, we know from human studies that um, we coordinate lots of our movements with how we breathe. I think what's different um, between a mouse and a human is that they breathe much faster than we do. They breathe when they're in the middle of uh, doing a task, they're breathing at like 10 times a second, which obviously is a lot faster than we breathe. Um, so I think it's, it's different in that sense. But I think the overall relevance in my view of our work to understanding the human condition um, is that the olfactory search behavior that we study is a prime example uh, where an animal has to coordinate how it moves with what it's sensing. And so that is a very general across all our sensory systems, all species. Um, the general problem is to some degree, our bodies are always moving. Even when we're sitting totally still, we're breathing. Um, our eyes are never totally still. So we have this constant closed loop with the external world where our sensory input impacts how we move and how we move impacts our sensory input. And so, um, and so because of the universality of that problem of coordinating sensing with moving, um, I, I mean, this is somewhat hopeful, but I think that we can learn general principles about active sensing, as we call it, or this coordination of, of sensing and moving um, in mouse olfaction that will generalize more broadly. Um, right. so, so I guess in terms of how I see the, the payoff to humanity, um, I, I see it as, as deferred. You know, we're, we're trying to understand the basic function of the brain. Um, and so the, the application of our work to human relevance is, is admittedly not guaranteed. And even if so, it's a long-term investment, let's say. But I don't know if I can uh, branch into a, a, a biographical, an autobiographical thing. Um, so I was originally motivated to take up neuroscience because I have an autistic brother. Um, so I've been interested in the brain since I was little. Um, and when I went, when I started uh, my undergraduate studies, I thought I would be studying to become a medical doctor and try to help autistic people. Um, but um, very early on, my reading made me very pessimistic about what we can actually do for people with autism conditions like this um, with the knowledge of the brain we have now. Most of psychiatric medicine are, are things that we stumbled upon by accident, not because we have a, a rational understanding of the principles of brain function, but because somebody happened to give this drug to somebody for one purpose, and then it turned out to help them for another purpose. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, um, I feel very strongly that 
um, basic research is going to be absolutely essential to our ultimate ability to improve the human condition through science. Right. Um, and so, and so that, that is what drives me to, to do something, you know, mouse sniffing, following their nose that doesn't immediately connect. Like why, why should a human care about that really? Like, you know, but that this is my, how I make the connection and how I, motivate myself to get out of bed in the morning sure no that that's very very helpful to to understand that connection and, and it actually it, it makes me think of you know uh, something that i heard and, and i'm curious to hear your perspective on this i guess since you were exploring going into the medical route you know i've heard that you know it takes you know say you know researchers discover something they discover a new drug or whatever it is new therapy and then oftentimes, I think I heard it was like, you know, at least like 10, if not 20 years before that was actually carried over from the research into practical, like medical applications. Is that something that, like, have you heard that before? Is that something you Absolutely. think is true? I mean, you know, you look, the, the science is replete with examples of uh, things that were discovered because somebody was curious um, and not because they were looking to, to have some immediate uh, application that later, sometimes decades later, became crucial to how we operate our lives. You know, like um, the application of quantum theory was delayed by several decades, but obviously it's the, it's the centerpiece of, of so much of our lives now. Um, I think a good example is um, just the today's announcement of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry to um, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier um, for the discovery of CRISPR. I don't know if you've heard about CRISPR. I, this is far afield from from what I'm interested in, but it, these they were studying the sort of immune responses of um, I think bacteria, some some microorganism, and just because they were studying this thing that maybe seems even more removed from real life than mouse sniffing, they found a, a, a biological system that was performing genome editing much better than the systems that we had, had developed in our, in, 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 in uh, biomedical research. So, um, so I think this is a prime example where somebody was studying something that seems not that relevant. Why should we be giving our tax dollars to that, to ultimately producing this, this science that this scientific finding that um, for better or worse will be very important for humanity going forward. Right. No, that's, that's fascinating. So it's sort of this, this innate gene editing system that's found like that we have within it, within no. us. No, we do not have it in us. Um, let me wait. I have to look up which species because I want to get this right. Um, let's see. Uh, I yes. Okay. So yeah. So it's adaptive immunity in bacteria. So this is something that that exists in some species of bacteria. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So these 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 scientists were were starting from studying how does a bacteria survive all the viruses that want to take it over. And so one of the ways it does this is by having this really nice system 
for recognizing um, DNA sequences and making cuts next to them as a way to um, eliminate or, or deactivate viruses by which it's been infected. Um, so, um, so the, I mean, that's, that's the dream for me is that my studies of active sensing and mouse olfaction could somehow have that kind of impact on our, our human condition. And um, how that would be, I, I really couldn't give you a straight line path sure. through which that could happen. But um, I don't think you could have given a straight line path between bacterial immunity and, and human designer babies. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, have there been any um, specifically uh, surprising findings uh, that have come out of your lab? Anything that's that that has really kind of shook up your understanding of olfaction or how the brain works in general? Before I came to UO as a faculty. I worked as a research scientist with Dimitri Rinberg at uh, the Janelia Research Campus in Virginia. And um, um, in uh, uh, Dima's lab, um, we were very motivated to design experiments that were very clean, very well-controlled stimuli, very precise measurement of the relevant physiological parameters, in this case, breathing, um, and basically to do a, 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 um, as, as precisely controlled an experiment as one can do with the olfactory system. And although that approach has really important virtue, um, I've always been interested in instead of, well, let's, let me back up. In general, um, neuroscience experiments entail a trade-off between naturalism and control. The more control you have over the stimulus, over what the animal is doing, the less similar it is to that animal's real life in the world. On the other hand, the more similar it becomes to life in the outside world, the more difficult it is to control what's happening. The animal's doing lots of different stuff. It's experiencing the sensory input in, in different ways, depending on where it moves at any given moment. Um, so, um, and so I've, I've really struggled with where to put our work on that continuum. Um, but I would say what, what I found surprising in our work so far is that I think we think of, of smelling as, you know, occasionally pulling in some air from a volume around our face um, and don't really think about how the movement during that breathing actually has an impact on what we're taking in. And I mean, it's that much more relevant to a mouse 
that is really often trying to follow its nose more so than the modern humans do. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is like they sniff really fast and move really fast in, in synchrony with the breathing. And that's something that was completely absent from my work before I came to University of Oregon, where um, we had preparations where we would um, um, affix a bar to the mouse's skull, and then that would allow us to hold it in place so it couldn't move its head. And that really simplifies the experiment because then you don't have to worry about what's happening when the mouse moves all around. You don't have to worry about how that's changing the odor. But the problem is, in the real world, the mouse has to worry about that. And so in, in one way or another, I think that's gonna be a really important feature, not only of, of olfaction, but of, of sensory systems in general. Right. Um, one, of the, one, one thing that actually just came to mind that I think would be, would be really interesting for the listeners, if you could walk, walk me through this sort of, you know, everyone sort of had the experience of, of you know, some very uh, uh, kind of strong odor that like associated with a memory, right? You know, yeah. you, you, your, your grandma making cookies or something, you know, for instance. Can you tell me like, how, how is that um, stored in the brain? And how is that able, like, why, why is that such a powerful um, sense, I guess? We don't know in terms of the brain mechanism. I mean, the, the thing people kind of can tell a just so story about is that um, our nose wires up to the rest of the brain in a fundamentally different way than any other of the sensory systems. So um, for all other sensory systems, um, the information, you know, transits from the receptors at the surface through layers of synaptic circuitry and ultimately pervading the brain throughout through those connections. Um, and so the difference with olfaction is the, um, the path to the forebrain is much more direct. That is like it's going, so let's say the neurons in the nose that actually sense the odors project to one region called the olfactory bulb. And then that region projects widely throughout cortex. Um, and as a result of that unique projection, there are many fewer synapses between the sensory neurons in the nose and the hippocampus, which is so strongly associated with those kind of episodic memories you're talking about. Um, there, you can get from the nose to the hippocampus in like two synapses. Whereas in, with the eye, it's probably uh, more like five to 10. I, haven't, I have to think about that. But um, so basically like other sensory inputs go through a lot more pre-processing before they hit the hippocampus. Uh, whereas for whatever reason, odor information gets there more directly with less pre-processing and, and why that would mean stronger or this you know unique relationship of odor with episodic memory i couldn't tell you but i guess these are two unique things about the olfactory system so maybe they are related somehow but that this connection is still very tenuous or non-existent <laughs> right right 
So when I when I sort of think of, of the, the olfactory system, I mean, it, it seems to be like, you know, uh, kind of alerting us to, to any sort of random smells, I guess, that, that could be associated with something maybe evolutionarily associated with danger or something. Um, do you think that uh, that you can sort of positively like influence the olfactory system? Like something that just came to mind, like, uh, like do you have any opinion on like the use of like essential oils, for instance? Um, I mean, that's just something that would kind of target that, that sort of system. Um, I haven't seen any convincing data for essential oils or any kind of aromatherapy. Um, I haven't looked that carefully, so maybe it's out there, but I'm, I'm very skeptical of, of that application of, of odor stimuli. I think one, one application of odor stimuli that um, has some support that I'm aware of is um, using it as um, to foster better uh, or stronger memories. So you can um, like uh, in a in some learning task not related to odors. You can just play an odor kind of peripherally so that the person smells it, but it's not relevant to whatever the person's doing. And um, if you present that odor while the person's sleeping, they remember um, that that memory. They remember in in memory tasks um, better. So I, I think like. I think the the link between odor and memory, I think, is is stronger. But um, but yeah, the, it's not it's it's not an area of olfaction that I think about as much. So I wouldn't want to make a strong statement one way or the other. Sure, sure, understandable. There is another, uh, I guess, maybe somewhat controversial one. I think that'd be interesting to address. Um, which is like the uh, like pheromones. Like I know they've they found that in lots of different species of animals, but I guess there's still, from from my understanding, there's still debate as to whether uh, pheromones actually like play a role in, in influencing human behavior. Um, what's yeah. your what's your take on that? Um, again, it's something I could believe being true, um, but. Um, the the evidence um is kind of weak at this point um so there's the famous like um um mcclintock effect where uh women living together synchronize their menstrual cycle but that that's a lot more controversial now i don't i haven't followed the the intricacies of that debate but my understanding is that it's uh it's very uh, called into question. And that's, to my knowledge, always been the, the like textbook example of a potential pheromonal interaction in humans. Um, that said, um, I think our chemo signals do have an effect on our social life. I mean, look at the perfume and deodorant industries, right? So, so, and, and pheromonal signaling is, chemical signaling between conspecifics. So, you know, your, your fragrance demonstrably has an effect on your social interactions. <laughs> well, let's, um, it, it's so interesting. I mean, you point that out. I mean, it, it's obviously something that, you know, 
marketers. I mean, it, it's like we know that as you're saying that it, it works, that it influences, you know, that sort of uh, those aspects of our social life. Well, why do you think, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to think why science hasn't, I guess, provided more validation or, or ex explanation of, of how that's actually like occurring. Agree. Yeah. Agree. Like, yeah. So, I mean, the, the challenge is, um, so any odor source, including a human body, um, is not like emitting a couple molecules that are, that are, you know, doing everything. Pretty much any natural odor source you encounter is emitting many, many different molecules that, that you can take up into your nose. Like, I think coffee has like almost 300 volatile components. And we don't, we don't perceive those as 275 different things. Um, we, we form this fused perception of coffee as an object. We're not like dissecting it into each molecular uh, constituent. So I say that to say um, the volatile molecules that we, our bodies emit into the air are inevitably going to be very complicated. There's going to be lots of them. And it's not so easy to just, um, you know, you could take a sample of the air and analyze the, what molecules are present and say, this is part of human sweat, this is not. I mean, I'm sure people have done that, but it's difficult to do an experiment that will say, it's that molecule right there, like that. And, and it's also difficult to quantify the, the social effects of anything, I think. I don't know, but um, so I think it's just, yeah, somebody should do that though. I should think about that more. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> yeah, or any, any researchers listening, go, go ahead and go for it. <laughs> um, what about, uh, I guess, speaking of other sort of researchers, what, uh, tell me about like, are there, are there any other uh, projects, any other like research labs or specific um, uh, like research projects related to olfaction that are like particularly interesting to you that you really uh, follow closely? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm biased, but I think my former advisor, um, Dima Rinberg is doing phenomenal work building on the stuff that we started together. Um, and, um, you know, it's kind of, he's continuing on the other side of the continuum of like, very controlled stimuli and experiments and unnatural, whereas I'm moving in this other direction. But I think, um, you know, he's, he, he just published a couple of really great papers um, delving deeper into how the olfactory system encodes information. Um, I'm a, I would say um, there's a guy at Harvard named uh, Bob Data, whose lab is doing a lot of important work in uh, several aspects of, of neuroscience, both olfactory and not. Um, um, but his lab has um, developed a technique for analyzing complex movements um, that, that uh, better than what has existed previously. So it, it's basically a way to um, 
let an algorithm label continuous behavior rather than me sit there and say, oh yeah, that was a nose swing. That was a, that was a backup, you know, instead of me watching it by eye and subjectively saying the mouse is doing this at any given moment, um, it provides a computational technique for essentially letting the computer find the, the best way um, to describe the, the individual movements um, and to very rapidly label uh, large data sets to say, you know, the mouse is doing this, this, doing this. Um, and so he's applying, his lab is applying that um, to a lot of questions in olfaction, um, including um, sort of what you talked about with the, the, the innate reactions to smells. Um, um, there are several really good labs that are working on that. Um, um, Lisa Stowers, Tom Baza, Ron Yu. I don't know. I could just list names all day. I don't know if that's going to be that um, illuminating for your readers, but um, no, that's that's yeah, that's an interesting uh, interesting few people that you mentioned. Um, you know, something that that just came to mind, and and I wanted to ask you about that's sort of connecting a couple uh, uh, different areas of or a couple different topics uh, that we've already discussed, which is. What, what's your take on, and I know there's still this sort of research in progress, but I know they're, they're looking at like inhaled, um, like nasal, uh, I believe it's oxytocin in connection uh, to like treating autism. I was curious your take on, I, I think I remember actually while I was at the U of O, I think in like a hormones and behavior class that I was in, they were um, the pro professor was talking about just the the different like it seems like a very sort of a, a, a heavily debated topic and, and field of research. Has has that gotten any more clarity in the last few years, or or are we still trying to figure that out? Um, my understanding is that the ability of oxytocin to cross the blood brain barrier and actually have an effect in the brain. Um, is very controversial. Um, I have a good friend um, named Gould Dolan. She's a faculty at Johns Hopkins, and she's done some of the most important work looking at how the oxytocin system um, affects social behavior and also the synaptic mechanisms that underlie those behaviors and, and the role of oxytocin in it. And she's always... She, she has biased me against those um, those nasal administration of oxytocin studies, um, but I have not read deeply enough to have a, a strong opinion. But I'm very skeptical. Sure, sure. Well, Matt, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Um, I guess I wanted to kind of conclude by sort of asking, you know, where where do you see maybe your your research, your lab? You know, you're talking about, you know, really. Your, your care uh, about, I guess, the research eventually kind of translating into, you know, practical sort of human, human applications or, or, or knowledge about uh, how, how the human brain works. Where, where do you see your, your research and your lab kind of progressing to going forward in the future? Tough question. Um, I guess, so you're, thinking, you're saying long-term, yeah. In, in the long term, 
I'd like to know, I'd like to understand all the circuitry that leads from the nose to the neck and, and the body and to the diaphragm and how those two things are connected. And so that's that takes up a lot of brain. So um, I don't know how close I'll actually get to that, but I think somewhere in the middle there, somewhere there is there are neurons that are involved in putting those two things together, the, the sensory receptors and the muscles and making them work nicely with each other. And I think that is going to be something that is, um, a, a, I well think, I admittedly very hopefully hypothesize that um, we'll be able to understand things generally about how receptors and muscles are coordinated by understanding this well in mouse olfaction. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm really curious to, to watch, you know, the, the direction of that research and, and should be really cool to see in the future. Um, Matt, it's been a, a pleasure getting to have you on the show today. Um, if people were, you know, interested in our conversation and want to find out more about, uh, more about your work, where would you direct them to? So our lab website is not currently operational. So unfortunately, I don't have a lab website to point you to. But um, I do have a Twitter account that I am somewhat active on. Um, but there's a the pinned tweet on there now is about our most recent study. Um, and I, I if, if people want to know more about what we're doing, that would be the best place to start. Awesome. Awesome. Well, go check it out. Uh, and for those of you who uh, enjoyed the episode, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, pretty much everywhere you can find audio podcasts. Um, and then we actually just launched uh, a premium version of the podcast, uh, which you can find at patreon.com slash Roscoe's Wetsuit. So go ahead and check, it, check that out. There's going to be some exclusive content that you can find there. Um, Matt, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.